Well, hello, friends. You're listening to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris, the Communications Director at Cap City, and I'm so glad that you're listening. In fact, I would love to chat with you. Send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org and say, hey, we're continuing with this series where we're going through the book of Jonah. It's a small book in the Bible about a prophet named Jonah and his interaction with God. But it's more than that. It's about a story for people like us. Today, we're getting to what most people think of as the climax of the Jonah story. There's been a huge storm while Jonah and some sailors are out at sea. The storm gets really rough to the point that everyone thinks they're gonna die. So Jonah says the storm will stop if the sailors throw him overboard. Sounds like quite the sacrifice, or is it? Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison, with the answer to that question. Sometimes a sacrifice really is not a sacrifice. We call it such, ever play that game? In fact, in some respects, that may actually be what Jonah is doing in the Jonah story, acting like he's making a sacrifice, but really not. We'll see. Here goes. I guess we all have our stories, and I'll bet quite a few of you guys can tell stories about how scary it was or how close you came to dying. You have any of those stories? I've had a few close calls. Here's, here's one that is just a little bit connected to the Jonah story. Years ago, I was whitewater rafting at the, uh, on the Yokohaney River up in Pennsylvania. I'd been on the water quite a bit, so they gave me this one-man duck. That's not a picture of me. That guy's way worse looking than I am. But um, in any case, I was doing fine. I was lining the boat up for a rapid and just as I was lining it up, I got hit from the side by these kids in a, in a raft that was completely out of control, and it turned me sideways just as I went into the rapid, right? So I went over the rapid sideways and got to the bottom of it, and instead of leaning into the waterfall like you're supposed to, I leaned away, kind of a dumb mistake, and I got caught up in what's called a hydraulic. The water just kind of spins there and holds you under, and was actually beating me against the bottom, kind of tearing up my leg, actually. And it's really not easy to get out of a hydraulic sometimes. You've got to go sideways through it. I couldn't get through it. And finally, I put my feet on the bottom of the, of the stream there and then just shoved sideways until I could make my way out. I came up spitting and gagging a little bit. I heard somebody saying that drowning is not a bad way to go. <laughs> I'm not sure they've been there. Um, it's tough. So I think it'd take a whole lot for me to tell some guys in a boat just to throw me over the side in the middle of a storm. Would you? And that's where we are in the Jonah story. And I'm telling you guys, we don't get this part of the story if we only listen here. You've got to listen here with your heart, and you've got to listen here with your emotions in order to understand what's going on in this scene. And whether or not you're a Jesus follower or not, this part of the story has some challenges for you. So, this guy Jonah is a prophet, a prophet from God, which means God would sometimes give him messages to convey to his people. And guys, if there really is a God, that kind of stuff wouldn't be too hard for him, right? So, God gives Jonah, the prophet, this message to convey this time to the Ninevites, the enemies of Israel, which is weird. And Jonah's like, no way, God. I'm not about to go do that. Not going to do it. Instead of heading northeast towards Nineveh, he jumps on a boat and starts going in nearly the opposite direction. And instead of just letting Jonah go and maybe calling someone else to carry out that mission, 
God kind of smacks Jonah upside the back of the head. You guys ever watch NCIS? You ever see Gibbs smack the nozzle on the back of the head? This is this scene with God and Jonah. Anyway, the sailors are desperate to keep their boat afloat. And they know there's something about this storm that is completely unnatural. So they figure that someone on the boat must have made one of the gods angry. And so they cast lots to figure out who the lots would point towards as making the the gods angry. They did that back then. And for some reason, the lots pointed to Jonah. So they start firing at Jonah. Who the heck are you? What have you done? Who's your God? We talked about that stuff last week. And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And the first part is true. He's Hebrew. Second part you wonder about when he says, I worship the Lord, since he's actually heading the opposite direction from what the Lord had told him to do. Anyway, that's where I'm going to pick up the story this morning, right there. Verses 10 and 11. It says, the sailors were terrified when they heard this. The, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the land and the sea. Because Jonah had already told him that he was running from the Lord. So they asked Jonah two questions, and they're excellent questions. Here's question number one. Why? Why did you do it? Hebrew scholars who study the language will tell you that their question is something like this. Are you brain dead, Jonah? That's my paraphrase. Are you a total freaking moron? Because they kind of feel like at this moment that they're in a rowboat with a guy who's asking God to send a lightning bolt to strike him dead and they're about to be collateral damage, right? And since the storm is getting worse, they ask him question number two, what do we do? How do we stop the storm? See, they didn't know anything about this Yahweh. That's what they... The Israelites called their God, this God who actually did seem to own the land and the sea. They're getting a glimpse of his power. Now, if it had been one of their gods, like a Baal or an Asherah, or maybe because they're sailors, a Neptune or a Poseidon, they might have had some idea about what to do with this so-called prophet of God. But how would this Yahweh respond, this apparently terrifyingly powerful God? How would he respond? And what Jonah says is weird. Think about it. It's weird. Throw me in the sea. And it'll be calm again. Because this storm is my fault, he says. And they're, what? And have you ever guys seen the, the movie The Perfect Storm? You know, George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, Jonah says, just throw me into something like that and God is going to calm it down. Now, you've got to wonder in this scene, is this the first inkling in the story, the first time in the story we actually see Jonah start caring for somebody other than himself? Throw me overboard, at least you're going to make it. Storm's on me, not you. I'm hosed either way. They'll throw me in. Is this a hint of selflessness? Maybe, but maybe Jonah wanted to die. I mean, there are times, aren't there, when dying just doesn't seem so bad, we think. Guilt can do that to you. Shame can do that to you. Man can carry around so much guilt and shame that it's crushing him, it's literally killing him. 
How do you think a prophet of God is going to feel when he's on the run from his God? The God of heaven and the sea. Maybe Jonah just thinks he deserves to die, so he's like, just throw me in. Or maybe, maybe Jonah wanted to die for a different reason. This God, Yahweh, is trying to force him to do something he really did not want to do. He literally hated the idea. God says, go preach to this most incredibly evil, brutal people. And Jonah's saying, no, they don't deserve grace. They deserve hell. I would rather die than see these guys have a chance with you, God. He's just trying to stick it to God. Ever, have you ever felt anything akin like that when you know God wants you to do something and you hate the idea so much that you dig in your heels and you absolutely refuse? We do that sometimes. Or maybe it's not about dying. Maybe Jonah actually thinks that, that if they throw him in, he'll make it to the shore, especially if the sea calms, right? I mean, they've been throwing stuff overboard. Maybe he sees something, he's going to swim to it and kind of hang on to it until he makes it to the shore. Or maybe when the storm dies down, if it really does die down, they'll let him back in the boat. But at the least, Jonah is honest enough to admit that the storm is on him. Guess, maybe, I don't know, guilt, maybe. A nudge from God, maybe. And at the least, perhaps Jonah is thinking of somebody other than himself. And that'd be a start. But the sailors aren't sure. Here's what it says, verse 13. Instead of throwing Jonah overboard, <coughs> the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. They didn't want to mess with this prophet of God. But they discovered that the sea was too violent for them. They couldn't make it. Now, why'd they just start rowing? I hope they were conflicted. I hope they were. I mean, if someone told you to kill them, right, for whatever reason... I hope you'd be looking for an alternative, right? They're looking at murder. And even though they were pagans, they knew that murder was wrong. Even in their pagan world, a man deserved a trial first. And what if, what if Jonah is just yanking their chain? I mean, he had given them no evidence so far that he cared for them at all. And this Jonah had identified himself as a prophet of God the one who owned the land and the sea, the one who sent the storm. And if killing a prophet of God, would that possibly make God matter? Are they going to do it? So it looks like they're not too far from shore, probably hugging the coast as they're heading west. So instead of throwing them overboard, they start rowing to the shore, probably trying to get Jonah off their boat as fast as they could without killing him. It doesn't work. Have you ever been in a boat in a real storm? It's scary. So verse 14, they start praying. Good idea. And this time they're not praying to their own wannabe gods. They're actually praying to Yahweh. It says they cried out to the Lord, literally in the Hebrew, to Yahweh, Israel's God. Yahweh, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your good reasons, I suppose. We're not trying to diss you. He tells us to throw him overboard. So we're going to do what he says. The sailors picked Jonah up and they threw him into the raging sea. (laughs) And it says, the storm stopped. 
Because if there really is a God, he can do things like that. Now, if you think about it, that storm stopping immediately is probably scarier than the storm, right? I mean, what would you feel like if you actually came to realize that at that moment you're in the presence of someone who is infinitely powerful and he is not tame because we don't have a tame God. So it rocked their world. Verse 16, the sailors are awestruck. They're awestruck by the Lord's great power. No kidding. So what they do, they offered him a sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. Because it'd be absolutely stupid not to, wouldn't it? So, that's about as far as we're going to take the story line this morning. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about love. I know that sounds kind of weird, but this is a love story. There are three characters in this part of the story. There's Jonah, there's the sailors, and there's God. And each one of them shows us something about love or a lack of it. First, there's Jonah. Jonah doesn't do too well in this part of the story. In fact, Jonah doesn't do too well in any of the story of Jonah which is one of the remarkable features of so many Bible stories. It's one of the things I love about the Bible stories. The people who wrote these stories didn't try to sanitize their heroes. God's people are often twits, and when they were twits, they told us they were, which is pretty cool because it means there's hope for twits like you and me, right? But it's possible, not certain, but it's possible that this is the first time in the Jonah story so far that he shows any heart. I think you have a hard time calling it love. It's still heart. It's on me, guys. Throw me into the sea and you're going to be okay. It's not repentance. You don't hear Jonah telling God, I'm sorry, God. I blew it. You're right. I'm wrong. My bad. I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do. You don't even hear him saying something like, throw me into the sea because I deserve it, guys. Go ahead and kill me because I've disobeyed my God and I don't deserve to live. And if it sounds like I'm being mean to Jonah, hang on. You're going to find out that this Jonah is a twit all the way through this story to the last verse. He's always peevish towards God even when he obeys him. In fact, it's possible that Jonah is kind of like, go ahead. Go ahead, throw me in, kill me. Go ahead, God, drown me. It's way better than preaching to these Ninevites that I hate. It would be awful. But think about it. Is there anybody that you hope God hates? Is there anybody in your life that you hope God hates? Is there anybody that if you saw him in heaven, it would make it kind of feel like hell for you? And it also seems to me that Jonah had another option. I mean, I've always wondered, haven't you, why he didn't just jump himself? I mean, maybe while their backs are turned, just jump overboard. I mean, I mean, he says something like this, if you want the storm to stop, you have to throw me in. Why? Why didn't he just jump? Why dump it on them? If he knew the storm was his fault, why would he force them to do something that they would have to live with forever? Just jump. I don't know, maybe, maybe Jonah had a thing about drowning. I can get that. Maybe he had a moral thing about suicide. So he's suggesting that they murder. Maybe he's just a coward. 
scared to jump. We could probably understand that. But maybe it's the first time in the story Jonah starts thinking about someone other than himself. And that is a start. It'd be a start for a lot of us today, wouldn't it? There's no indication he's thinking about God. Maybe there's a little indication that he's starting to feel something for these sailors. The New American Standard is a very literalistic Bible translation. Here's how it words verse 12. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, for you guys. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you guys. It's going to calm for you because this storm is on you because of me. Maybe it's a start. Because he wasn't doing so well before this. I mean, Jonah's on this boat because he didn't want to preach to pagans. These sailors are pagans too. Not the mean kind like the Ninevites, but they're still pagans. Kind of non-believers that you and I have around us every single day. And Jonah watched these pagans pray to their gods while he was ignoring his own. He wasn't doing too well. He'd watch them try to save his life when he wasn't contributing anything to the effort to try to save them. In this whole story, they had been acting way more noble than he has been. And he knew that they were in a fix, not because of any sin that they had done, but because of the sin that he had done. So maybe he started feeling something, some pity, some compassion for these guys, and that would be a start, wouldn't it? Hmm. Maybe for some of you guys to turn toward God... You need not just to think about what it means for you, but for those who are watching you and those that you're trying to lead. And then there are the sailors. The sailors were kind of yanked into a story that at first doesn't seem like it's theirs. It's going to change their lives. But on the other hand, maybe this story is almost as much about the sailors as also about Jonah and the Ninevites. These sailors, these pagans were pretty good guys. They certainly worked hard for the common good. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They did everything they could to respect both Yahweh and to respect this prophet of God. And when they got a glimpse of Yahweh, they did exactly the right thing. They offered a sacrifice to him and they vowed to serve him. How smart is that? In fact, it's a pretty good model for, I think, a lot of people today some point in your life, it's going to happen, it probably already has, some point in your life you're going to come face to face with the God of heaven, with this Yahweh. Maybe not in as dramatic a fashion as these sailors, but you will get a sense of his presence and his power and his grace. And you will discover that our God is not tame, but he is good. And even if you're already a pretty good person, the appropriate response when you come face to face with God is to offer him a sacrifice of yourself and vow to serve him like these guys did. And if you will do that, you'll discover that life begins to make sense. But the real star of this love story is God. It's pretty amazing. Even though a lot of people push back against the God of Jonah because they kind of see him as uncivilized. I mean, what kind of God would respond with such fury at one of his chosen ones? Wouldn't it have been better if God gave Jonah kind of a timeout or something or maybe just some understanding and grace 
rather than doing something this uncivilized? And what kind of a God would allow the storm to threaten not only the one who dissed him, but even innocents who were around him? I mean, a God this big, this powerful, this smart could have been a little bit more accurate with his lightning bolts, right? Bottom line, isn't this whole idea of an angry God, a wrathful God, a God who can kill? Isn't that whole idea rather barbaric and primitive? Wouldn't this storm, if it was God-driven, call itself into question whether Yahweh was worthy of sacrifice and worship? Think a lot of us who are more sophisticated and cultured and civilized, we think foolishly. Even though most of us agree that there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? Wouldn't you say there's such a thing as righteous anger? I mean, if there's nothing that makes you mad, you're broken. People disrespecting other people, if people abusing other people, if people abusing other people or bullying other people doesn't make you mad, you're too civilized. If you can't muster up some righteous anger when someone is messing with your wife or your kid or your grandkids, what's wrong with you? So why wouldn't a perfectly good God get angry at sin when sin is messing up his kids? If God was simply apathetic towards our sin, how holy would he be? How just would he be? I don't want a God who doesn't care. I want a God who hates sin so much that someone has to die for it. Even if that's his son. But all that's kind of beside the point. Because the love of God is so clear and so powerful in this story. There is Jonah, this belligerent, rebellious prophet. And God had options with him. An apathetic God would have just let Jonah go. Go on. See, the opposite of love, listen, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. It's not caring. And you see it sometimes. Some parents don't set any rules for their kids. They don't enforce any rules for their kids. They don't allow the kids to suffer any of the consequences of their misbehavior. That's not love. It's apathy. Letting someone you love head down a path of self-destruction without trying to stop them, that's not love. It's apathy. Letting someone you love hurt somebody else that you love is not love, that's apathy. And we do not have an apathetic God. We have a God who's quite capable of using a storm to turn us around. Nor do we have a vindictive God. The storm is not a cosmic temper tantrum. It's not like God's up there, I'm your God, you diss me and I'm going to smoke you, right? Run for me and you drown. You can only think that because we haven't gotten to the fish part yet. See, God had already concocted this incredibly wild plan to rescue this belligerent, rebellious prophet. See, the God who sent the storm had already prepared the fish. Sometimes he sends stuff that rattles us. Always offering a rescue. God is truth and grace. He's always truth with grace. And so God has this wild, uncivilized love for Jonah. And if you look at it, he's got this wild, uncivilized love for these sailors. 
He really does. I know God was allowing them to come into harm's way because of Jonah. But if you were them, would you say it was worth it? Was it worth it? I mean, if this Yahweh really is the God of heaven, the one who made the land and the sea and everything in them, if this Yahweh was their creator and their Lord too, what would it be worth to you to make his acquaintance? What would you be willing to sacrifice? And at the end of this scene, these sailors are awestruck by God's power. How cool is that? Finally, their eyes are opening and they offer Yahweh a sacrifice and they vow to serve him. See, if you actually believe there really is a God and there really is a life after this life, a heaven and a hell, if you actually believe that your relationship with God will determine both your quality of life in the present and what happens to you after you die, what would you give or not, what would you not give for God to rattle you or anyone that you love until they bend their knees to him as their Savior and Lord? A little smack on the back of the head would be more than worth it, wouldn't it? What about the Ninevites? I haven't mentioned them, but they're in the scene too. God is loving on them with this storm, isn't he? In fact, in a way, they're the reason for the storm. God had given Jonah this mission, go preach to these detestable Ninevites, this detestable people that God still loves which is why God is sending Jonah to them in the first place, because he loved them, wanted to give them a chance. Jonah didn't get it. Jonah didn't want to preach God's grace to people that he hates, so he runs the other way. Because God loved Jonah, and because God loved these sailors, and because God loved these detestable Ninevites, he sends a storm. Is that so hard to believe? It's so hard to imagine that our Huge God can do something like that. If there really is a loving God, none of that's going to be beyond him. None of that certainly is going to be too hard for him. I mean, is this love story any harder for you to believe than in a God who loves us so much that he'd send his own son to die for us? See, we don't, we don't, think just here. You've got to feel here and you've got to feel here. We don't know what's at stake in this story. What's at stake for every single one of these characters and what's at stake for us who read this story. So it's hard for us to see this as a love story, a wild, uncivilized love story. But it is. Which is why many people have called God, this sounds almost blasphemous, but they called him the hound of heaven. It's almost like he's a bloodhound that's on your trail, chasing after you. This hound of heaven is chasing after these sailors, even though they seem like they're just extras in the scene. Hound of heaven is chasing after these Ninevites, which is why all of this stuff is going down. Kind of guys the rest of us kind of hate. But our God is not like the rest of us. He's the father of the prodigal. Never quits loving on his rebellious kids. He's like that shepherd who leaves the 99 in the wilderness so he can go search for that one that is lost. He's the one who keeps nudging you before you become a Jesus follower. He's the one who has kept nudging you even after you become a Jesus follower. He's the one who sent his own son to die for us. He's the hound of heaven. I don't hang on to too many of the old hymns. You guys have probably realized that. But there are a few that grip me pretty hard still. 
This is one. It doesn't use the words hound of heaven, but I, I just love the words. It opens like this. Oh, love, that will never let me go. A God who will never quit on me. I rest my weary soul in thee. Have you? I give you back the life I owe. And why would you not? That in your ocean depths, its flow may richer and fuller be, because you will never regret it, right? It's powerful. One of my favorite Christian artists when I was younger was a guy named Michael Card. You guys heard of Michael Card? He was a very serious Jesus follower, a fine musician, and a very reflective writer. He wrote songs that you could actually chew on. And he actually called one of his songs, The Hound of Heaven. It was the name of the song. Here's just a few of the words. I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the paths of years. And some of you guys know exactly what fleeing God feels like and looks like, right? And I kept hearing about the love of the one who was following me, like that hound. You heard about him and you felt his presence. You felt him on your trail. He says, I clung to every shallow friend, the whistling mane of every wind, as we all try to put something else in his place. But I feared that, <laughs> I feared that once I tasted his love, I'd never let go. Why would we fear that? But we do. So as I shouted to the sky so blue, hide me from this one who is so set on loving me. Good luck with that, hiding from the God who loves you that fiercely. It says, finally I can flee no more. So I yielded for your open door. Good song, isn't it? Guys, your legs are too short to run from God. There's nothing that you've ever done that's going to make him love you less. I don't care who you are and what you've done. There's nothing you could ever do to make him love you more than he does already. For some crazy reason, our wild, uncivilized God wants to do life with you right now, for now, and for forever. Isn't that cool? Maybe you're scared that if you surrender your life to God, your life will be worse. We can really be stupid. Maybe you're afraid that if you surrender your life to your creator that he'll get it wrong. He won't give you the life that you could have if you lived it without him. He can't be trusted. Maybe you're afraid that if you surrender to this incredibly powerful God, he won't be committed to your good. God who will suffer for you and die for you is worth living for, guys. It's a love story. It's a picture of God's love story for us, isn't it? It's a picture of God's love story with you. He's not tame, but he's good. And if you end up like those sailors did, just saying, okay, make a sacrifice of myself to you and make a vow to serve you, your life's not going to get worse. You might discover what life was all about in the first place according to your creator. So it may be that you're sitting here and you've never made Jesus Christ the king of your life. What's holding you back? 
you want to do that, we've got an elder who's praying for you right now back in that prayer room. Or you can come and chat with me. I'm going to sit right down here for a little bit in this next part of the service. I'd love to talk to you. Or there's a little card in front of you. It's called a decision card. It's blue on the top. If you write your name on there and some contact information, we'll reach out to you and we'll talk about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Maybe that you just need a church home. We say this over and over and over again. You need a church home. God didn't make us to go out alone. If not Capital City, find another God-honoring church and make it your home. Right? Right? 